This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. And here's hoping everyone under the satellite's footprint is making the most of this holiday weekend, the 237th anniversary of our union. Where are you today? Among the Purple Mountains' majesty, across the fruited plain, somewhere from sea to shining sea? A special shout-out, if you'll allow me, to my son Toby and his fellow campers at Camp Walt Whitman in Piermont, New Hampshire, hopefully playing baseball and cooling off with a juicy watermelon under the hot July sun. They don't have satellite radio at Walt Whitman or, indeed, electronics of any kind, but it's nice to think of that boy just the same. It's worth noting, too, Walt Whitman, the man. For while we celebrate 237 years of union, we also mark this week the storied crusade of disunion, the sesquicentennial, the high watermark of the Confederacy, the Battle of Gettysburg, fought between the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia 150 years ago this week, across the farmlands and gentle hillsides of central Pennsylvania, the last invasion of the United States. Walt Whitman, then in Washington, attended the wounded of that war. As news came back from Gettysburg, Whitman wrote in Specimen Days, and I quote, I walked on to Armory Hospital, took along with me several bottles of blackberry and cherry syrup, good and strong, but innocent. Went through several of the wards, announced to the soldiers the news from Meade, and gave them all a good drink of the syrups with ice water, quite refreshing. Prepared it all myself and served it around. Meanwhile, the Washington bells are ringing their sundown peals for the 4th of July. The usual fusillades of boys' pistols, crackers, and guns. Those the words of Walt Whitman. The first time I visited Gettysburg, I was probably seven. My dad, usually cautious, put me on a large horse, which I remember accelerating to an unplanned trot. After a hundred yards or so, the forward momentum was arrested by the outstretched branch of an oak tree that left me sprawled on my back, temporarily wounded, unlike the 50,000 or so dead or wounded who clashed between north and south. Ever since then, that place and that battle has fascinated me. From the tactics and strategies of moving forward men under arms to the dueling political and economic philosophies that cut America in half. So joining us on this special 4th of July weekend edition of Polyoptics to talk about that battle, the war that surrounded it, and the ideas and ideals at stake, 150 years ago is Dr. Alan Gelzo, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College. Dr. Gelzo is the author of the just-published cyclorama of a book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Dr. Gelzo, oh captain, my captain, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Polyoptics. It is a great pleasure to be with you, Josh, although I'm afraid I don't have the rank of captain. In fact, I'm actually the only member of my family in four generations who has never been part of the armed forces. I have to write a book about military affairs, as it were, from a distance. It's interesting. You dedicated this book to your son, Lieutenant Jonathan Gelzo. That's right. He's currently at Fort Benning and will be looking to move on to Fort Hood. He is, uh, he's in armor cavalry. You talk in the dedication about the times that you and he walked across the Gettysburg battlefield, and and yet you lived in your childhood in Yokohama, probably while your parents were in service there. When did you first get to see this battlefield? I got to see Gettysburg for the first time in the spring of 1975. It was part of a field trip, and I wasn't actually part of the class that was going there, but I tagged along because I was serving as a teaching assistant for the professor who was taking his class there. I just couldn't resist the opportunity. And I remember very clearly there was an epiphany because I walked up the ramp to the overlook at the old Cyclorama Center, the one which is now gone, actually. I know we're going to talk about that a little later. And looked out in a kind of panorama across that battlefield and it struck me. I could identify everything. I would say in my mind, that's Little Round Top. 
that's the clump of trees, that's Seminary Ridge. I had read so much about this, had seen so much in the way of it in my mind's eye, that when I stood there on that overlook, it was like a deja vu experience. Was your dad to you, like you to Jonathan, a good teacher of history? Actually, he was a professor of economics. He put in his 20 years as a career army officer, but when he left the armed forces, he went and got a PhD in economics, taught for a number of years at Catonsville Community College. And I pressed him at one point, and I said, why did you get a PhD in economics? And he looked at me and said, why did you get a PhD in history? And I thought, (laughs) okay, end of that discussion. Dr. Gelzo, we'll get to your book in a second, but right now I'm looking at the current edition of Civil War Times, three takes on Gettysburg, the 150th anniversary commemorative issue of Gettysburg, and the National Geographic special edition, Civil War, the Conflict that Changed America. Having listened to some of your earlier commentary about the way the country is reacting to the sesquicentennial, as we reach July 1st through 3rd, 2013, how, in your view, 150 years after Gettysburg goes the sesquicentennial at this time? I've been somewhat apprehensive about the sesquicentennial as a whole. And let me separate that from Gettysburg as a part of the sesquicentennial. The sesquicentennial has not had nearly the kind of fizz that the centennial of the Civil War had 50 years ago. A lot of that, I think, has to do with the reluctance of politicians to touch subjects today involved with race and slavery. There's a real anxiety on the part of the political class just to let the subject alone. And that has meant that public involvement in the sesquicentennial observations has been much more muted than it, has been, than it was in the centennial years. I think another factor which plays into this is that so much of American uh, high school and secondary school education has drifted away from a lot of history. And the mandates from state, local, or federal governments, together with the anxiety about uh, creating more in the way of science, technology, engineering, and math opportunities, has tended to squeeze history to the margins of many school curriculums. And this is something, in fact, that many high school teachers have said to me. So the awareness level is a problem. But I think fundamentally there is simply the fact that it's now 150 years rather than 100 years since the Civil War. And there is a certain degree of almost inevitable drop-off in the intensity of interest. So the sesquicentennial has had far more uh, in the way of indifference greeting it then it has serious celebration or serious interest for all those reasons taken together. The role that Gettysburg plays in that will be something of an exception because Gettysburg is clearly going to be the spike in the sesquicentennial observations. Gettysburg is attracting, according to the estimates that I have heard, upwards of a million people during 2013. And the crush of people that are coming to Gettysburg just for the 10 days on either side of the battle anniversary will be extraordinary. Now, some people have expressed some apprehension. Well, is that going to make Gettysburg exactly the place you don't want to be? My reassurance to people is that, look, you know, Gettysburg has been handling invasions for a long time. And we managed to handle the 1863 one okay. I think we'll do just fine uh, in 2013. So if people do have plans to be in Gettysburg in July, then I can't encourage them more. I think one of the greatest things that people can do as part of the sesquicentennial, both of the Civil War as a whole and Gettysburg, is to come and to visit the battlefield. Let's try and do some history on this show as well. And while I want to go back to the beginning of the battle and even the run-up toward the battle, let's begin where you end your book, basically to sweep and plunder the battlegrounds. And I want to talk about what it was like on this day that this show will be airing 150 years ago, July 6th. And you talk about the experience of Lieutenant James Crocker of the 9th Virginia and his particular relationship with that battlefield. And then the work that David Wills was brought in to do the months before Lincoln eventually turns up on on November 19th to dedicate the battlefield. Well, to put it in a word, on July 6th, 1863, the entire area 
around Gettysburg, and we're talking something on the order of 16 square miles, was a shambles. It was a shambles composed of cast-off equipment, weapons, corpses, and corpses not only of the human casualties of the battle, but also of horses, mules, broken-down everything, from broken-down wagons to broken-down cannon. Civilians who had been trapped in the town during the battle in the first three days of July were only just sorting out their affairs. And true to form, one of the first and most important tasks that had to be organized was the burial of the dead. The armies moved on. But that meant that there was very little in the way of available military manpower for burial details. So one of the first things that the provost guard of the Army of the Potomac, which has been left behind to oversee this, puts into place is a punitive program. That is, any civilians found on the battlefield, especially those trying to fill their pockets or their hands with looted government equipment, are immediately going to be pressed into service for those burial details. Confederate prisoners of war are also going to be conscripted for the burial details. The details will concentrate on burying the dead soldiers, Union soldiers first, Confederate soldiers last. As far as the horses and mules and their carcasses, they won't even get buried. They'll simply be piled together and they'll create huge pyramids of fire and be burned. All of this is going to be going on on the 6th of July. At the same time, you're also going to have flooding into Gettysburg tourists. Now, it may seem strange because we think of tourists as something that come as a modern phenomenon. But in fact, within three days of the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, tourists begin showing up. And some of them really are intending to do a little bit of genteel looting, sometimes for souvenirs, but also sometimes to resell things, sometimes back to the government, sometimes back on what must have been the 19th century equivalent of eBay. A few of those people are going to be collared by the provost guard and find themselves doing something very differently, but many others are going to be treating the battlefield as though it was a great big treasure chest. Among those who are coming, by the way, is going to be a crew of photographers. That's what I wanted to get to, the photojournalists. Exactly. A crew of photographers coming up from Washington, D.C., headed by Alexander Gardner, will arrive in Gettysburg on July 6th and immediately begin taking photographs on the battlefield. Literally, they will come up to the southern end of the battlefield and they will notice the burial details at work. Remember that photography at this point is not so much a matter of documentary recording. It's a very commercially driven kind of practice. And photographs of corpses on battlefields were very very lucrative items. Alexander Gardner and his team immediately turn off to the right and begin photographing still unburied Confederate corpses on the battlefield. And they will spend all of July 6th trying to capture as much on the battlefield as they can of the burial of the dead. That's going on at the same time. And even within the town, recrimination. During the occupation of Gettysburg by the Confederates, there were some people who were a little bit more happy to see the Confederates than they probably should have been. One of these was Henry Staley, who was the editor of the Democratic newspaper in Gettysburg, the compiler. His Republican rival, David McConaughey, denounces him to the provost guard. The provost guard arrests Staley on the grounds that he has been collaborating with and communicating with the enemy. And in fact, Staley will spend a short time as a guest of the United States government in the prison at Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. So there are some scores that are getting evened up that way. All of these activities are going on at the same time as you have a population of about 14,000 wounded federal and Confederate soldiers housed in homes, in churches, in warehouses, and soon enough, they're going to have to create jerry-rigged from tents a general hospital, which they will name Camp Letterman, on the York Road leading out the East Road from Gettysburg. 
Professor Gelzo, I want to now skip back to well before the battle and frame up some of the major players that will figure so largely between July 1st and 3rd. And I should probably begin with the Commander-in-Chief of the federal government. And here to provide a little context, we call on our good friend Daniel Day-Lewis in his personification last year of Lincoln. Things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. That's a rule of mathematical reasoning. It's true because it works, has done, and always will do. In his book, hmm, Euclid says this is self-evident. You see, there it is, even in that 2,000-year-old book of mechanical law, it is a self-evident truth that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. In your epilogue, Dr. Gelzo, you talk about Lincoln and his working through this matter of things being equal to each other. But what did this man who professed to have difficulty even shooting a piece of wildlife out in the country, who then had to command hundreds of thousands, millions of people in battle, what views did he bring to the spring and summer of 1863? I think that could be captured in one word, anxiety. Because in 1863, especially in the first half of the year, the Union cause had never looked dimmer in its possibilities. Partly this was because of the repeated military reverses that the Army of the Potomac had experienced. There had been the great disappointment of the Peninsula Campaign. There had been a humiliating defeat at Second Bull Run. There had been a sort of victory at Antietam, but a victory which was squandered because the commander of the Army of the Potomac, George McClellan, failed to follow it up. And then that was followed by two more humiliating defeats at Fredericksburg in December of 1862 and Chancellorsville only two months before Gettysburg in May. That had triggered a tremendous amount of war weariness across the North. That was added to by... Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which he issues in a preliminary form on September 22, 1862, but then signs into military law on the 1st of January, 1863. The response to the Emancipation Proclamation was very negative politically. The Republican Party, Lincoln's own party, loses 36 seats in the House of Representatives in the November 1862 elections. Not only do the Republicans lose that kind of leverage in Congress, but they also lose important governor's seats. Governorship of New York and of New Jersey move into the Democratic column with two very vocal anti-Lincoln candidates. Now, in 1863, this is going to be compounded by the fact that in Pennsylvania and Ohio, there are also serious challenges being made by anti-Lincoln gubernatorial candidates. Imagine if a cluster of states, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Ohio, are all now in the hands of anti-Lincoln governors. Would they be in a perfect position or not to pull the plug on their support for the Northern War effort? So Lincoln has to be extremely worried about what's going to happen in June and July of 1863. He needs, more than he needs anything else in the world, he needs a successful outcome from the Army of the Potomac. And the question is, is he going to get it? How is he going to get it? And who's he going to get it from? As is well documented in your book and others, his frustration with McClellan is one of the most difficult things he has to deal with. He doesn't really get his first choice in the matter, and I want to hear then-Colonel Robert E. Lee in Gods and Generals. I have been authorized by President Lincoln himself, with the full blessing of the War Department, to offer you full command of the Army with the rank of Major General, this army being raised to quell this uh, rebellion, and of course to preserve the Union. I assume this army is to be used to invade those areas to eliminate the rebellion by force. Yes, sir. The federal government has been challenged by these rebels who have been most effective in changing the sentiments of various state legislatures, challenging our constitution and uh, challenging our central government. The attack on Fort Sumter cannot be ignored. 
That's Robert E. Lee in Gods and Generals, Dr. Yelzo. What kind of approach did General Lee take to, to commanding the Army of Northern Virginia? Robert E. Lee knew, probably better than any other major Southern officer, how very fragile the Confederacy's strength was. He understood that the resources of the North, in terms of its material and manpower, could overwhelm the Confederacy in the long run. The Confederacy could not afford simply to adopt a defensive posture and hope for the best. Over the long run, the Confederacy would be crushed. So Lee began agitating almost as soon as he takes command of the Army of Northern Virginia in 1862 to move the war north onto northern soil, invade Pennsylvania, and do one of two things. Either demonstrate that he can occupy large stretches of Pennsylvania for as long as he feels like and live off the Pennsylvania farmers, or he can meet the Army of the Potomac on northern soil and defeat it. And if he does either A or B, the political fallout from that will be catastrophic for the Lincoln administration. That is the gamble that Lee understands he needs to take. Because if he does not strike north and strike quickly, then in the long term, the Confederacy is doomed. So he moves north with the Army of Northern Virginia with a view not so much to immediate military consequences as to affecting the larger political impact of what his invasion will mean in the north. I was struck by your writing that it seems that Lee was working quite unilaterally, not consulting very closely with President Jefferson Davis or his Secretary of War. How much was Davis clued in to what Lee had in mind? Lee had a very close relationship with Davis. And yet, there was anxiety on the part of Jefferson Davis because, for one thing, Jefferson Davis is from Mississippi. And at that point, the situation of the Confederacy in the Mississippi River Valley was perilous. At this point in the war, only one stretch of the Mississippi River still remained in Confederate hands, and that largely nailed down by the great Confederate citadel at Vicksburg. That was under pressure by siege from General Ulysses S. Grant. And there were many pressures on Jefferson Davis to carve away resources from Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, especially in terms of manpower, and shift them to the Mississippi, where it seemed like they were much more immediately needed. This Lee resisted. Lee had joined the Confederacy for the sake of protecting Virginia from any kind of attack by the federal government. He was certainly not going to be receiving any more favorably the notion that the Confederate government itself should subtract from the defense of Virginia. So when Jefferson Davis and Secretary of War Seddon first offer this plan about taking part of Lee's army and moving it to the Mississippi, Lee immediately responds by insisting, no, we must keep it together here in the East, and what's more, I will need it all to make an invasion of Pennsylvania and invading Pennsylvania will actually produce more results for the Confederacy than by peeling off Confederate strength from the east and sending it west. I want to talk about that movement up to the Pennsylvania border through Maryland and the sense that the Army of Northern Virginia was feeling in the esprit de corps that they had after we hear a little bit of that character, characteristic music, the Bonnie Blue Flag. And the brothers as native to the soil, fighting for our liberty, famine, war, and toil. And when our rights were threatened, the cry rose near and far. Hurrah for the Bonnie Blue Flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah for solid rights, hurrah, hurrah for the Bonnie Blue Flag that bears a single star. We owe you, Texas boys, a debt of gratitude for putting on these shows. Any man can't handle guitar or fiddle fit to carry <laughs> For those listening very closely, that's Ted Turner in a cameo from Gods and Generals many years ago. Dr. Gelzo, you paint this picture of the Army of Northern Virginia. They have one foot in Maryland and one foot in Pennsylvania. And at that moment, the United States is invaded. What was Lee's army doing at that point? They were enjoying the prospect, and for two reasons. One is Pennsylvania was like an entirely different universe to them. Here was territory which had never been touched by the finger of war. Uh, 
There were no burned farmhouses. There were no scorched fields. There were no wrecked fences. In fact, Pennsylvania's barns were bulging with the food that half-starved southern soldiers were only too happy to fall upon. But the other thing which buoys up the southerners is this sense they've acquired of their own invincibility. One soldier in the 16th North Carolina talked about how, before the beginning of the Gettysburg campaign, they were drilling on the beautiful banks of the Rappahannock River and waiting for the Yankees to put up another general for us to whip. And when they actually move into Pennsylvania, southern officers write back to their families and say, victory will inevitably attend our arms. That was the sense of confidence that Confederates had as they moved into Pennsylvania. Any Yankee army they met, they would beat as they had beaten time and again before. Let's hear a little bit from those early days camping out right before the Battle of Gettysburg. Here's Lee's adjutant, Mr. Taylor, coming up to General Lee and offering part of the bounty of the area in which they're in. Good morning, Major Taylor. Will the general have some breakfast? No, thank you. We have flapjacks in small mountains. Fresh butter, bacon, wagons of ham, apple butter, ripe cherries. Really ought to pitch in, sir. Courtesy of our host, the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Dr. Gelzo, what kind of invader was Robert E. Lee? You talk about the orders that he issued in terms of paying the local merchants for all the supplies they may have requisitioned. Robert E. Lee wanted to draw as dramatic a a contrast as he could between the Union occupation of Virginia and the Confederate incursion into Pennsylvania. He wanted especially to make it clear that Southerners were chivalrous gentlemen, and they did not seize the property of civilians. They did not lay waste to the countryside. And so General Orders number 72 and 73 are supposed to make explicit the terms under which Southerners will move into Pennsylvania. They will not steal outright. They will pay for any goods or services that they require, and they will not turn themselves loose like a band of brigands and pirates on the Pennsylvania countryside. And I say that, and immediately I have to add, that was what was in Lee's orders, not what was in Confederate practice. In fact, if you examine the orders carefully, the payment that is going to be made to Pennsylvanians for anything which is seized from them is to be made in Confederate money. And that, of course, was tantamount to offering them nothing at all, because what were they going to do with Confederate money? In fact, not even Confederate money gets offered in many cases. The Southern soldier, like soldiers in almost every 19th century army, understood that invasion was, in some respects, a kind of open season. Lee is more concerned in those two general orders with the discipline of his men than he is with the property rights of Pennsylvanians, because one thing that Lee certainly feared during this invasion was that if his soldiers did, in fact, begin to behave like brigands and pirates, then his officers would find it extremely difficult to control them when the time for fighting and for combat came. So Lee's orders actually are less a statement of southern hospitality, so to speak, than they are about a disciplinarian's anxiety for the discipline and morale of his own troops. In fact, Southerners will take just about anything that is not nailed down and a few things that were nailed down, (laughs) including, and and this may in fact be the most um, offensive aspect of Southerners moving into Pennsylvania and seizing property, it's the seizure of black people in south-central Pennsylvania. The Confederate Army, as it moved up into Chambersburg and the Cumberland Valley, whenever it found black Pennsylvanians, free black Pennsylvanians, it seized them, it captured them, it roped them together, and sent them in coffles back south to the Richmond slave markets to be sold. They were a commodity, and there was going to be a profit realized from it. Some 500 Pennsylvania black people are kidnapped by the Confederate Army and sold into slavery back in central Virginia. We lose all track of those people once they disappear across the Potomac River. We really have no idea what happened to them. 
But it does mean that anyone who wants to romanticize the Confederate movement into Pennsylvania as though the Confederates did nothing but leave their footprints behind has to reckon not only with the record of widespread looting and pillage, but also with this really extraordinary action taken to enslave captured black people. Pivoting then on that note to the gathering storm in the Army of the Potomac, the picture that you paint of Lee's expectant invaders and the camaraderie that they seem to have, as you point out in Gettysburg, the last invasion, quite different contrast to to the Army of the Potomac, which loses its leader three days before Gettysburg, and Joseph Hooker is replaced by George Gordon Meade. And as we listen to a little bit of Hell in the Wabash and the March of the Iron Brigade, I, wanted, I want you to paint a picture of the opponents that Lee was about to encounter. Joseph Hooker, in a way, had already been gone from the army long before he was actually dismissed by Abraham Lincoln. After the defeat of the Army of the Potomac under Hooker's leadership at Chancellorsville, Lincoln had moved to clip Hooker's wings pretty severely. And really, Joe Hooker was still in command of the Army of the Potomac only by sufferance. When, in fact, Hooker proposes, as a way of dealing with Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, lunging westward to attack the rear of Lee's army at Frederick, Maryland, that proposal is pretty effectively vetoed by Lincoln and by his general-in-chief, Henry Wager Halleck. And in frustration at not being allowed to conduct his own operations, Hooker resigns. Well, that was exactly, in fact, what Lincoln and Halleck had been waiting for. They don't waste any time nominating a new commander for the Army of the Potomac, and that is the man who had previously commanded the Fifth Corps of the Army of the Potomac, George Gordon Meade, a native Philadelphian, well, almost native, Actually, he had been born in Cadiz, Spain. His father, Richard Meade, was a Philadelphia merchant, and during the Napoleonic Wars, he had been active in Spain, and that was where his son George was born. But Philadelphia really was George Meade's home, which means that Pennsylvania was his home state, and you might expect in that case that this was a very shrewd decision on the part of Lincoln to put a Pennsylvanian in command of the army to give it spirit for defending its most important homeland. And yet the truth was that George Meade was almost the last name on the list that Lincoln went down of potential commanders for the Army of the Potomac. And that largely because so many of the others to whom he offered the command turned it down. The Army of the Potomac had lost so many fights, and the position of commander had become so politicized that a number of senior officers actually declined command. And Meade takes command of the Army of the Potomac on June 28th, not because Lincoln has invited him, but because at this last extremity, Lincoln simply orders him to take command. After a break, the second half of our conversation with Dr. Alan Gelzo, author of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, on this, the sesquicentennial anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's is growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. Before we return to our conversation with Alan Gelzo on this, the 108th episode of Polyoptics, one quick note. While we never know how many people listen to our show on the weekend that it airs on SiriusXM, we know we have a devoted following online and on iTunes. A few months ago, we switched over the hosting of our past episodes to the Sideshow Network, and since then have just surpassed 10,000 episodes of the podcast. Not bad at all. Over the last few weeks, we've covered the polyoptics of the moment, like President Obama's trip to Northern Ireland and Germany, We've covered the intersection of media, politics, and entertainment, like our conversation with Ben Smith and Don Ostroff. 
We talk about public policy issues such as last week's show that Jeff Smith hosted about our prison system and rehabilitation. And of course, we talk a lot about history, like Matt Bennett's guest host turn a few weeks ago discussing Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and the special show that you're listening to today with Dr. Alan Gelzo. So, dear listener, what floats your boat? What do you want to hear more of and what do you want to hear less of? What are your thoughts about how we do things here on Polyoptics? We'd love to hear from you. Write us at polyoptics at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Let's keep the conversation going throughout the week and beyond. And let's keep our conversation going now with Dr. Alan Gelzo, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and author of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Dr. Gelzo, when we left off, the armies were massed and we were getting ready for the early morning of day one of Gettysburg, July 1st, 1863. And I want to hear a little bit from Generals Buford and Reynolds looking out at their situations across the field at Gettysburg. There'll be a lot more behind him. Well, we've got about 20,000 we can put in the field. We're in very good shape, I think. For a while, sir. Sending messages to all my commanders and companies to face with all possible speed. Love the ground. I hope so, sir. Now let's go surprise Harry Heath. That's Sam Elliott as General John Buford. Dr. Gelzo, what did the Army of the Potomac do against the Army of Northern Virginia on day one, beginning with the early morning and the cavalry of General John Buford? Well, it almost didn't do anything. And the reason for that is bound up with the figure of John Reynolds, whose voice you heard very briefly in there in conversation with John Buford. George Gordon Meade takes command of the Army of the Potomac on June 28th, and his first instinct, and it's not a bad instinct, was to play it safe, to play it cautious. That's what he was by temperament, but it's also justified by a situation where, literally, he's been thrown into this very unstable, very unpredictable environment. Meade's plan was to concentrate his army behind Pipe Creek, a tributary of the Monocacy River in northern western Maryland, and he preferred the idea that Lee should come and attack him. Reynolds, however, was very resistant to that. Reynolds was a Pennsylvanian, too. In fact, he was from south-central Pennsylvania. The Reynolds family had long history in Lancaster. And Reynolds was very determined to get to grips with Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, lest Lee be allowed to run rampant through the Pennsylvania countryside. It's mostly Reynolds who takes the bit between his teeth and, along with Buford as his cavalry screen, brings two corps of the seven infantry corps of the Army of the Potomac up to Gettysburg to seize Gettysburg before Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia can do so. Robert E. Lee wanted Gettysburg because he hoped to concentrate the three Army Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia there. And by occupying the ground at Gettysburg, that would become the springboard for him to attack elements of the Army of the Potomac as they came up piece by piece from Maryland. In a sense, John Reynolds springs the trap that Robert E. Lee hoped to lay at Gettysburg, springs it prematurely by getting to Gettysburg first with Buford's cavalry and then on the morning of July 1st with the infantry of the 1st and the 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac. And Reynolds is determined to fight for that ground and at the same time also force the hand of George G. Meade to abandon the Pipe Creek plan and move the rest of the Army of the Potomac up to Reynolds's support at Gettysburg. And that, in large measure, is how the collision of the battle begins. And how would you say that day one ends? And another question I've always had, when you have monumental clashes such as these, some of the longest days of the year in July, at what point does someone like General Meade or Robert E. Lee turn in, go to bed, What happens in those darkest hours between the days of fighting? Well, Robert E. Lee had not planned to fight at Gettysburg itself on the 1st of July. 
He did, in fact, indicate to a number of his subordinates that he expected there would be a battle around Gettysburg, but he hoped to concentrate all of his army there first. The battle that breaks out on July 1st is a little too early for his plan. He does not actually arrive at the battlefield until around 2 o'clock in the afternoon of July 1st. But when he does and takes charge of the Confederate troops which had already become engaged there, then he applies the pressure that cracks the 1st and the 11th Corps and sends those Union troops fleeing back through the streets of Gettysburg, there to group on a small height south of the town known as Cemetery Hill. And that is when darkness falls, and Lee concludes, well, we'll finish this in the morning. We won't press an attack on Cemetery Hill right now because we really don't need to. That turned out to be a mistake. I want to hear a little bit of Lee's orders about Cemetery Hill because it always struck me as I was studying Gettysburg and certainly saw in the movie Gettysburg, this word practicable comes up again and again. I want to hear it from Martin Sheen as as Robert E. Lee in Gettysburg. Major Taylor? Yes, sir. I want you to deliver this message in person. Find General Ewell telling the federal troops are withdrawn in confusion. It is only necessary to push those people in order to gain possession of those heights. Tell him to take that hill if practicable. The ones beyond the town. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, sir. Very well. I'm afraid Martin Sheen... It makes him makes makes Lee sound a little bit more urgent than that message really sounded. If practicable, well, what exactly does that mean? It's something different from if it's practical. It's more like if you think you can do it, go ahead, but don't feel that it's an absolute complete necessity or that this is a direct order. Why did Lee put it in those terms? Well, he put it in those terms largely because he really didn't feel a tremendous amount of urgency. The battle on July 1st had, in fact, turned out, surprisingly for Lee, in exactly the way he had hoped a battle around Gettysburg would turn out. He would bring the overwhelming strength of his army together. He would meet pieces of the Army of the Potomac and defeat them in detail. And he would continue to do so for as long as the pieces of the Army of the Potomac continued to come up piecemeal into the jaws of his trap. So by the end of the day on July 1st, Everything really has turned out, miraculously, the way Lee had hoped it would turn out. And July 1st, if we took that simply in isolation, would be one of Lee's greatest victories. Moving on to July 2nd, the second day of the battle, I was very interested in reading your book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, because it seems to debunk one of the, in some respects, one of the great heroes uh, that we've had in Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the Colonel leading the 20th Maine, a top little round top. And I want to hear a little bit of Jeff Daniels in his role as Colonel Chamberlain in Gettysburg. Sir, we ought to pull out. No, we can't do that. We can't hold them again, sir. You know that. Well, if we don't, they go on by and over the hill and the whole flank caves in. Sir, here they come. Well, we can't run away. If we stay here, we can't shoot. So let's fix bayonets. We'll have the advantage of moving down the hill. They gotta be tired, the revs. They gotta be close to the end if we are. So fix bayonets. Ellis, wait, Ellis, you take the left wing, I'll take the right. I want a right wheel forward of the whole regiment. What, you mean charge? Yes, but here's what we do. We're going to charge swinging down the hill. Just like we pulled back to this left side of the regiment, now we're going to swing it down. We swing like a door. We're gonna sweep them down the hill just as they come up. Understand? Does everybody understand? Yes, yes sir. sir. Okay, Ellis, you take the... Left wing, and when I give the command, I want the whole regiment to go forward, swinging down to the right. All right, sir. Fine. Move. Love that bad main accent by Jeff Daniels. Professor Gelzo, in your book, you really ascribe a lot of heroics on day two to Governor Morris and other uh, leaders of the Army of the Potomac. Can you give us a broader sense and the themes that went on during day two? Well, I'm a little hesitant to say that I debunk Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, because, you know, he really did do the right thing on Little Round Top on July 2nd. He was parked at the far, far left end of the Union line, and he was faced with a situation to which he came up with a perfectly novel and heroic response to fix bayonets and to charge. I'm not interested so much in debunking Chamberlain as I am in making it clear that Chamberlain was actually a face in a crowd 
of Union officers of similar rank. We're talking line officers here. We're not talking major generals or brigadier generals even. We're talking about officers in command of regiments, sometimes, sometimes officers in command of even smaller groups, who on their own hook, without a whole lot of direction, purely on their own initiative, make the right decisions, make the right calls, drawing on some kind of mysterious instinct, which allows them to look at a, an apparently hopeless situation and still pull the rabbit of the right solution right out of the hat. Chamberlain does that on Little Round Top, but Governor Warren also does that on Little Round Top. Patrick O'Rourke of the 140th New York also does that on Little Round Top. The first Minnesota does that on July 2nd, close to Plum Run. Freeman McGilvery does that by pulling together an artillery line that will help stop the on-charging rush of the Mississippi Brigade, again, near Plum Run. And then there is Samuel Sprigg Carroll's brigade, saving the day on East Cemetery Hill. And old George Sears Green, Pappy Green, improvising defenses that hold Culp's Hill in a nighttime attack launched at them by almost two divisions worth of Confederate troops. Each one of those individuals, acting just the way Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain did, also had just as important a role in fending off the great attack that Lee launches on July 2nd. So while there's all honor to be given to Chamberlain, that honor also has to be given to a number of these other individuals who made similar decisions and really came to some of the same heroic conclusions. And it's just a matter of polyoptics, really, that the Chamberlain story gets told better than others because, frankly, he lives a longer time, serves as governor of Maine for several terms and also the president of Bowdoin College. So his story is better able to be told in the late decades of the 19th century and on into the 20 and into the early decades of the 20th century. It does help to live until 1914, and it does help to be prominent in the public eye, and it does help to have a certain instinct for self-promotion, which Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain did have. And yet, even saying that, I'll be the last to subtract from the fact that Chamberlain really does perform a beau geste there on Little Round Top. As we come down to the end of day two, I want to hear a little bit of the battle cry of freedom. As we come back, give us the disposition of both armies as we are about to enter day three. Well, the Army of the Potomac was in bad shape. On the first day of the battle, two of the seven infantry corps of the Army had been wrecked, really, beyond much recovery. And then on July 2nd, three more of those infantry corps were pretty effectively put out of action as well. That really left, uh, in terms of effective combat strength, the 12th Corps, which had to hold down one flank on Culp's Hill, the 6th Corps, which Meade needed as his reserve, and then parts of two brigades in the 2nd Corps. That was about it. For that reason, Meade does something really unusual. He calls a council of war of his corps commanders to ask them what they think he should do. Now, he already has an idea. And his idea, again, devolved back towards Pipe Creek. Maybe it was time, after all of this battering, to pull the army back, take it to Maryland, and inhabit a more defensible position than Gettysburg offered. But to the surprise of many people, the corps commanders didn't take that cue. They insisted that the battle had to be fought there. Winfield Scott Hancock, who commanded the Second Corps, said, this army has done enough retreating. Let this be the last retreat. And so Meade concedes the army will stay and it will prepare for whatever the next day, July 3rd, is going to bring. Let's hear what that next day, July 3rd, brings as envisioned by General James Longstreet and General Pickett. 
played by Tom Berenger and Stephen Lang in Gettysburg. General Tremble, Commandant Pender's division, will be on the left. Pettigrew's brigade in support. General Pickett's division will be on the right side of the attack. And uh, George, I want you to put two brigades in front and one in back, like so. Yes, sir. Garnet's brigade, that's Jimmy Kemper. Armistead's in support. Good, all right then. Garnet will dress off of Trimble's flank. He will be the hinge, so to speak, in a series of left obliques. Somewhere about the Emmitsburg Road, you will execute your first left oblique, then direct, then left again, and so on at your own discretion, in order to deceive the Yankees and spread them out in a long line. Here. Any questions? All right, gentlemen. My question for you, Dr. Gelzo, is then what happened with Pickett's charge? What ought to have happened with Pickett's charge was that Pickett's division, along with the troops commanded by Isaac Trimble and James Johnston Pettigrew, should have just walked right through the Union lines behind Cemetery Hill, because there really were only those four brigades that were effectively in a position to resist them. In other words, about 3,500 Union troops against maybe as many as 12,000, 13,000 Confederates. People have often stood at the angle where the spear point of Pickett's attack hit the Union line and said, isn't it foolish for Lee to have taken all these Confederate soldiers and made them march over 1,400 yards of open territory without any concealment or protection? But in fact, it really wasn't suicidal at all. For one thing, they were very good examples from recent military practice in the Crimean War, for instance, where that kind of frontal attack, in fact, was very successful. And what's more, Lee was aware of the fact that the Army of the Potomac looked like it was a boxer on the ropes and ready to go down, whereas he had an entire fresh division in George Pickett's three brigades. If he closed and delivered that one last knockout punch, then the Army of the Potomac would hit the canvas, the battle would be over, the invasion would be successful, and perhaps the Confederacy would secure its independence at that one stroke. And of course, history tells us a very different result. The battle is over by the end of July 3rd. You've described the scene on July 4th, 5th, and 6th, and the weeks that followed, and history doesn't return in a large way to Gettysburg until a party leaves Washington, D.C. on November 18th with the commander-in-chief, his three cabinet secretaries, his two personal secretaries, the Marine Band, and others, as you write about, and he gives a speech on November 19th, appropriate remarks as it was billed following the oration of Edward Edwards. I want to hear those appropriate remarks as performed by Gregory Peck in The Blue and the Gray. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. Alan Gelzo, you describe a substantial bulk of your epilogue of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, to bringing us through those appropriate remarks from the tall man, as you call him, As people listen to this show on the sesquicentennial of Gettysburg and put that in context, what was so important about what Lincoln said there? Well, Lincoln certainly thought Gettysburg was important. Gettysburg is an exception for Lincoln because Lincoln does not often leave Washington during the war. He usually turns down invitations to speak at various places in the North. Gettysburg, for him, though, needed to be an exception especially because the battle had come to its conclusion so close to the 4th of July. 
And Lincoln drew this bright line between the 4th of July, 1776, when we dedicated ourselves to the proposition that all men are created equal, and July 4, 1863, when it has become clear that the people who opposed that proposition have now been put on the run. When Lincoln comes to Gettysburg in November of 1863 to deliver those few appropriate remarks, he really wants to talk about the meaning of the war itself, not just about the battlefield, not just about Gettysburg, but about the meaning of this war. Because for him, it's all bound up with the survival of democracy itself. The United States had been formed at the time of 1776, dedicated to this proposition. And what was really happening in the Civil War was a test, a test of whether democracies can really survive whether they can really work, or whether, in fact, democracy is just a lovely idea, a kind of harebrained but very nice theory, in which practical democracies always self-destruct. The Civil War looked, in fact, as though the democracy was self-destructing, but in fact, Lincoln looks at Gettysburg and he says, here's the proof that it's not going to self-destruct. Here's the proof that democracies are not doomed. Here's the proof in these semicircular rows of graves, because these men saw something in democracy so transcendent that they were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for it. So what really has to happen here is not us dedicating a cemetery. No, it's us dedicating ourselves to the same cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. And that cause is the perpetuation of democracy, of government, of the people, by the people, for the people. Ideas that have survived 150 years and hopefully another 150 after that. You know, there's always great pressure, Professor Gelzo, on resources in our national parks and in our national historic battlefields. Sequestration puts incredible budget pressure on what we can do to maintain these places for future scholarship, future history, future learning. I want to hear a little bit of a local Fox TV report on the fate of the Cyclorama building and ask if you can just tell us the current state of the building and ask if you can just tell us the current state of the battlefield of Gettysburg and your work at Gettysburg College and the Center for Civil War Studies. For more than 50 years, the Cyclorama building has sat on Cemetery Ridge at the heart of the historic Gettysburg battlefield. I was only 15 years old, and uh, I remember what a great building I thought it was. President Obama, recycle the Cyclorama. But now fans of the building are fighting a new type of battle. A handful of people gathered on the battlefield Sunday to protest plans to tear it down. America has this habit of tearing down anything that's old. I think we just need to preserve not just our old history, like here at the battlefield, but our, our current history. The building, which was once home to the 360-degree cyclorama painting of Pickett's Charge, is now a shell of its former self. Well, as much as I'll remember that moment standing on the overlook, I can't say that I really possess a lot of nostalgia for the cyclorama building <laughs> as a building. I always thought it looked very strange, and it really was not an ideal home for the cyclorama painting. Sort of brutalist architecture, too. Yes, it was sometimes a bit reminiscent of certain Eastern European countries before 1989. And I have to admit, I, I really had a sense of relief when the thing came down, if only because... When the building was constructed in the 1960s, they actually had to do a lot of damage to that particular site on Cemetery Hill, which was known as Ziegler's Grove. They had to move a number of regimental monuments, and they really had to completely alter the look of that ground so that what you were looking at was really uh, a park that honored a piece of modernist architecture more than the climax of the Battle of Gettysburg. Seeing it go really did not start the tears in my eyes. And now, of course, the plan is to restore Cemetery Hill to its 1863 appearance. I think we'll gain a lot more by that than we could possibly have gained by preserving a building which had really long since outlived its usefulness. And your work in scholarship and the status of studying Civil War history and the extent to which these stories live on through other means other than Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, your new book that's out this year. At Gettysburg College, we have a program called the Civil War Era Studies Program. It does two things. It offers a minor in Civil War Era Studies for Gettysburg College undergrads, 
And we have a very large following there, I have to say. It's one of the largest programs uh, on the campus itself. And maybe that's not a surprise, because if you come to Gettysburg College, why wouldn't you come with a an interest in some aspect of the Civil War? We also, though, have uh, a a parallel program called the Gettysburg Semester. And this is a program which permits undergraduates from other colleges and universities to come and spend an intensive semester with us doing nothing but Civil War related studies. It's kind of like a study abroad program, except that you're not really going abroad. You're not going to another country. Uh, You're staying within the country, but you're coming to another century, the 19th century. So with those two programs, we explore the academic world of Civil War studies, not just the military part of it, but also the culture, the politics, the 360 surround sound, so to speak, of the Civil War era. And what better place could you possibly do such a thing than right in Gettysburg itself? Well, if you're driving and listening to Polyoptics today as we talk to Dr. Alan Gelzo, author of Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, and you set your GPS for Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and it's within a few hundred miles driving distance or or even more, I'd hope that you'd follow my path to Gettysburg to remember what happened 150 years ago. And if you can't do that, even if you can do that, go to Amazon.com or any other way to get a book and buy Dr. Gelzo's book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Dr. Gelzo, thank you so much for spending this hour on this important weekend and helping us remember what went on July 1st through July 3rd, 1863. Thank you, Josh. After that amazing hour with Alan Gelzo and the climactic conflict between the men of the blue and gray, let's take it home with a man in black, Johnny Cash, and the battle hymn of the Republic. Oh. 